This is the Education Gadfly Show. This is the revenge of us nerds who used to study hard for tests. What does Gadfly say? Hello, this is your host, Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, here at the Education Gadfly Show and online at edexcellence.net. And now, please join me in welcoming my co-host, the Lester Holt of Education Reform, David Griffith. Hey, thanks, Mike. That was a compliment. Uh, well, it was right. In my book. I, I mean, you know, first of all, smart, good questions, and and you know, a man of few words the other night. He just, you know, we, we sometimes you're a man of few words. You, you let <laughs> you let the show proceed rather than getting in the way. Yeah, sometimes less is more, Mike. I think that's what last night's debate showed. Uh, clearly, Alyssa likes this. Also introducing Alyssa Schwing. Hi. So that was my sly way of getting us to talk about the debate a little bit. We have to be careful as a nonpartisan, non-profit, non-profit right. organization. I, I can say this. I you know, th- This is not a statement about politics, but everybody knew there was a lot of talk about how Hillary Clinton prepared a lot the debate donald trump admitted that he did not uh, most of uh, the cnn poll seems to indicate that most people think that hillary clinton did better this is the revenge of us nerds who used to study hard for tests versus those kids that try to just show up and wing it yeah right yeah sure. <laughs> <laughs> i was reading an article the other day that compared it did either of you guys watch parks and recreation uh, a few, yeah a little bit well it was the uh, leslie note versus paul rudd uh, they made that comparison, which I thought was interesting. That is an interesting comparison. Yeah. So, uh, look, uh, the, the message to kids okay. this week should be, uh, yes, it is important to study for tests. Uh, it is important. And and you shouldn't do it all at once. Uh, you should do it over several days. But you should be prepared. That is a good thing in life is to be prepared. Agreed. Agreed. Okay. There we go. All right. Now, to nerds. Uh, yes. So. Yes, I am. And to former teachers, which I'm excited about because we're going to have a lot of teacher talk today on education reform update. Ah, <laughs> I tell you, I love, I love that jingle. Dan Goldhaber, he loves it too. Heard from him last week. Thanks, Dan. Uh, and thanks for listening. Okay, so we're going to talk this week about an article that I wrote for Education Next. Uh, we have it up on Education Gadfly this week. Uh, what I try to do here in this article is ask the question, after everything we've fought over with the Common Core and the tougher tests, and now that most states are reporting to parents uh, that their kids are not on track, that their kids are not proficient, that their kids uh, are not on track for college and career, and yet... Uh, we have data showing that 90% of parents think their kids are on grade level. Well, like and, well effect. Uh, yes. So we finally have more honesty in reporting thanks to the higher standards and tests, uh, <laughs> but it has not yet seemed to have much of an impact in terms of parents' perceptions of how their own kids are doing. This at a time when most parents and most kids say, say to people who surveyed them that they aspire for college. So there's all these parents out there. They think their kids are doing fine. They're on track for college. They're actually not. Only a third of kids actually are on track for succeeding in college. And the big question is what gives and what might be done about it. And you know uh, what I think is is the big problem here? What? Grades. Discuss. You think grades are the issue? Look, I think that us parents, we parents get reports from our kids' teachers all the time. We we see worksheets and we see assignments graded and we see report cards and we do teacher-parent conferences. And the message we get most of the time is, hey, your kid's doing fine. Maybe even they're doing great. And my question is, are teachers out there thinking about the signals they might be sending when they tell a kid who is 
you know, not anywhere near proficient or on track or on grade level telling their parents that they're doing really well. Go ahead, David. All right. So, uh, yeah, I'll take the bait. Uh, <laughs> uh, just like Donald Trump. Excellent. Okay. I, I, I think teachers are thinking about this. They have to be, right? Um, but, but I guess I, you know, what I would ask you is, so what, what is actually your proposed solution? So let me just, let me just play devil's advocate here. Uh, I was a teacher. I had a class of students where almost everyone was well behind grade level. Right. Are you actually saying we should fail all those kids? What to you, what to you is the right signal? Yeah, no, I think it's a good question. And first of all, I want to be very clear that I really don't blame teachers on this. Okay. I mean, I mm-hmm. think that, uh, First of all, maybe something that they haven't uh, thought through. But secondly, you know, I think there's a lot of pressure on teachers to give good grades, pressure from administrators, pressure from parents. So in no way am, am I blaming the teachers on this. But look, in a school like you described, I might argue that if everybody's way behind, then yeah, the highest grade should probably be a C. That, that to give kids A's and B's who are on, nowhere near on track for success is sending a really misleading signal. I, I see Alyssa does not agree with this. And I'm making faces, yes. Um, I think you said the word a couple of times, and I think it's an important one to discuss because it's the one that's most present in these conversations, which is blame. These kids are behind. Whose fault is it? Is it the parents? Is it the past teachers? Is it the current teachers? And when you're a teacher and you're having this conversation with a parent, it's really hard to both be very, very honest and also not blame somebody whose mm-hmm. fault it probably is not and also offer kind of a path forward and like kind of a hopeful this isn't your destiny like you can still mm-hmm. like be there's a successful person yeah. not, yeah. not only there's time but like this isn't an actual reflection on your person you are not a bad or failing person things like mm-hmm. that so there are incredibly tricky conversations where there is a lot of mm-hmm. grave circumstances and there's not really a clear cut it's because of this person or this fact, and we can just fix it, which comes up in the conversation. Okay, but come on. I mean, it just seems like, uh, look, 25 years ago, the standards movement started because the concern was there were not equal expectations across different schools or districts, yeah, and that in more affluent areas, the expectations were higher. That simply put, what it took to get an A uh, in Bethesda uh, was a, a lot different than what it took to get an A in Anacostia in that you had all these examples of kids who, who you know, grew up in Anacostia and were valedictorians and would go off to college and were just flabbergasted at how much less they had learned than the other kids that were there. And, and they felt robbed that, that people did not hold them to higher expectations. And, you know, look, so it does seem like if, you know, should, so the question is, you know, should an A or a B should you have to meet more or less the same standard, regardless of what school or district or zip code uh, that you happen to be in? I mean, if not, aren't we just again? This is this is just lowering expectations for poor kids. Okay, so I got a couple things to say. All right, so one of them is that uh, I think I'm in partial agreement with you, Mike. But but here's what makes me nervous: grades are one of the only ways that we actually truly capture non-cognitive skills in the current education system. And if you look at what predicts success in college, Mm -hmm. right, then, I mean, several studies have found that grades are more predictive than test scores, right? So on the one hand, I'm not disagreeing with you that there's great inflation and that we need a way to let parents know, but, but, what other mechanism do we have of, of, of signaling to colleges or, or, or rewarding kids mm-hmm. who are trying hard, potentially, right, right. but just aren't there? Right. No, and, and, and I agree with that, that, that I don't 
believe people sometimes there's this whole reform movement for standards based grading where basically saying the only thing that should be in that grade is is achievement and right. it shouldn't matter if the kid did the homework or not or if they just you know were participated in class discussion or right and and i would disagree with that i think it is important that teachers have a tool to motivate kids to try hard to do their homework to participate in class to do regular daily assignments and not just ace the exam at the end. I mean, all of that I'm fine with. So I wouldn't say there should be a one-to-one correlation between grades and test scores. But I do think it's a problem uh, if we have uh, parents out there who believe in their heart of hearts that their kids are doing fine. See, we all, and you know, with the policy wonk crowd, we all know that everybody is getting A's and B's and that doesn't mean anything, but nobody has bothered to tell America's parents that. How many schools, and I know the answer is we don't know, but like how many schools, particularly at the elementary school level, are still even giving out grades? Because when I was teaching in the elementary school mm-hmm. level, we didn't give grades. Well, not A to F, but some well, kind of letters of some sort. I mean, you know, my kid's school, it's uh, ES for exceed standard, AP for proficiency, AI for something else. I don't know. Right. So like when I was teaching, I was teaching under Common Core and... I had a printout that was, I think it was like one, two, three, four, and those aligned to the same things. Like you exceeded the standard, you were on the standard. And my parents got a sheet and I didn't even come up with it. Um, Mm -hmm. That was just all the standards and had their mark on all of these standards. And some of them hadn't been taught yet. So they were blank at the beginning of the year. But like we Mm -hmm. just gave them kind of a one to four scale rating on every Mm -hmm. um, standard that they were supposed to know, which I would argue gives parents more information and actually could make for more nuanced conversations than an A, a B, a C, or a D. Sure. What if we had, what if we had two grades? Right? <laughs> you have your effort grade and you have your achievement grade. Yeah. Like, now I guess like growth and achievement in, in school grades, right? This right. is, by the way, how I still managed to get A's in art in gym in middle school was that there were effort components. Yeah. No, look, I, I, I think that, that there's something to this. I, here, here's another thing I would say is, can we at least start by giving some information to teachers? Let's tell teachers, hey, and maybe, you know, forget elementary for a minute. Talk about middle school and high school. Tell teachers here, here's how your grades compare to other teachers in your school, uh, in your school district, in your state, uh, just in general. And then we will also do an analysis where we'll compare those grades you're giving to test scores. Okay. And so maybe you can look at, you know, teachers who have kids similar to yours, how your grades compare. And it may be that there are some teachers who don't realize they're outliers that are being way too, you know, where it's way too easy to get an A in their class and they, and they don't know it. And maybe just even that little nudge would be enough for them to, to at least have second thoughts about that. I mean, I think with all of these conversations, whether it's with teachers or with parents, like the frame is important and the messaging and the wording is important because we don't want to kind of incent like a negative or a backlash reaction. And I would argue one of the areas that we kind of overlooked mm-hmm. when we implemented Common Core was messaging to teachers because teachers are the people parents are most likely to get yeah. information from. Yeah, so here has this for message to teachers. Hey, teachers, stop lying to parents. Is that, is that what you have in mind? I think that might incite some backlash. (laughs) I am not the communications professional that Alyssa is. I I guess, okay, so let's say I agree with you, and I do agree with you that we should should publish these things, right? Um, Does that, I mean, do you think that's enough would that be enough to solve the incentive problem? Because there is an incentive problem at at the the heart of this, right? Which is teachers and schools, you know, that we all know the University of Chicago curves to a C, right? But that's the University of Chicago, Joe Average High School 
has zero incentive to, to make to get all their graduates into terrible colleges by giving them low grades. It, it so, may not. No, look, it may not be enough. It may be a problem that cannot be solved. You know, maybe the best we could do is say, hey, you got to put the kids' test scores on every report card to, again, remind uh, the parents that all is not well. I don't know exactly what you can do. You know, we look, this, this is a big issue, and I would love to get mm-hmm. listeners out there, uh, hey, give us your best ideas. How can we tackle this issue? But I do want people to at least think about the idea that student grades, uh, everybody getting A's and B's, that is a problem. Uh, and it's a problem because uh, it is sending a really, really, uh, really dangerous signals to parents. I mean, it is basically, you know, it's like telling parents of obese kids that their kids are fine, you know, and they, they don't need to do anything to change the diet or that they shouldn't worry about these things, okay? I'm glad you went there. Uh, <laughs> yes, thank you. David doesn't seem to disagree, but I don't see how this is different. These kids... <laughs> think they're doing fine and we know we can predict quite well that they're going to go to college they're going to end up in remediation they're going to drop out they're going to be 20 years old with nothing but debt and regret and we know that and the parents don't could have said it better myself Mike. <laughs> david is not so <laughs> sure about this i mean they know the kid's fat they don't know their kid's not on track for college. All right. People seem to think that this is not the best argument. I'll keep working on it, people. I'll keep working on it. That is all the time we've got for Ed Reform Update. Now it's time for everyone's favorite, Amber's Research Minute. Amber, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Mike. Amber, we were just talking about a great inflation and obese children, uh, much to Alyssa's chagrin. But so here's the question. When, when you were a high school English teacher, did you think about grades like in, in the signals they were sending? <laughs> so, for example, would you be worried about giving uh, an A or a B to a kid who was not actually at grade level or on track for college? I don't think I would. Um, And I can tell you why, because at that point, a lot of kids kind of see the writing on the wall when you have them as juniors and seniors, Mm -hmm. at least minded who, you know, and they see that, oh my gosh, you know, I'm about to send out college applications. Um, And they're trying to, at least at my school, they were actually trying to do well because they knew these were the critical years for college acceptance. Um, And I found I got a little bit more out of them because they were a little bit more motivated Mm -hmm. in the later grades. They might have been in ninth grade when eh, college seems so far away. Yeah. Um, So you you think it's unlikely that any of your A or B students went on to, for example, end up in remedial education? Um, I hope not. I mean, I hope I wasn't at that, you know, I hope I didn't have grand illusions of trying to bolster self-esteem. Yeah. I think that I, I think teachers, there are some like that, right? Yeah. Um, But I... Not that I was not into self-esteem, but yeah, I, I mean, like- call the baby ugly, right? I mean, that's that's what we're talking about. No, okay, all right. What you got for all us this right, week, Amber? We got a new study that examines various impacts in middle school of being at the top of the grade span, or otherwise the top dog, versus mm-hmm. at the bottom of the grade span or the bottom dog. Mm-hmm. All right. The theory is that top dogs, by virtue of being in the oldest grade in a building, mm-hmm. have oh. better schooling experiences. Then do students at the lower grade wrong who, you know, they're kind of like the sort of the babies of the school, mm. right? The pups. Yes. So the study includes two cohorts of New York City middle school <laughs> students. So we're talking about kids in grade six through eight, totaling about 90,000 students and 500 schools. All right. Wow. They were studied between the years of 2008 and 11. Analysts utilize various student level demographic data as well as student self-reported data on a New York City school survey, Mm -hmm. which was kind of the cool instrument because that's where they got all these um, questions that kids were asked around 
bullying and some of this other non-cognitive stuff, okay? Uh, bottom line, um, analysts find through, and it was a causal analysis, by the way, they do yep. a bunch of fancy statistic stuff where they can kind of claim causality. Top dogs are less likely to report bullying, fights, and gang activity, and more likely to report feeling safe and welcome in the school mm-hmm. than were bottom dogs. The bottom dogs report the opposite on all those measure, measures mm-hmm. I just said. And the middle dogs, so these are the kids like in seventh grade, for instance, um, in a sixth through eighth school, mm-hmm. um, they report better experiences than the bottom dogs. Mm-hmm. Okay, so a little bit better than the kids on the bottom one. They also dig into whether, so okay, maybe there's some other stuff going on. Okay, so they dig into whether the bottom dog effect may, may be due to students who are simply new to the school. Mm-hmm. Or, and this is kind of interesting, maybe since the top dogs tend to be taller, because they're older and they're in higher grade. And oh, by the way, they had their height because New York City has this fitness test they have to take. So all the no kids, they have the way. kids' height. Okay. But then they look at whether just being tall is what's going on. And they were able to basically rule out, once again, through a mm. bunch of fancy stats that this was not, it was not due to them being tall. It was not due to them being potentially new in the school. Okay. So they felt pretty confident in their results. <laughs> they also find a stronger top dog effect in sixth grade. Then in eighth grade, they think that happens partly because there's a stronger top dog effect in longer grade spans. So, for instance, if you're a top dog in a K-6 school, Mm -hmm. you're a top dog over more grades Whether versus if you're one in a 6 through 8 school, right? Mm -hmm. Because there's fewer grade spans. Um, And because sixth grade is a final grade in the K-6 schools, um, anyway, they think that it makes 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 more sense that the sixth graders would have more of an impact than the eighth graders. Okay. Uh, finally, the data show that top dog status has large effects on academic achievement. Um, but you know what? That was really a secondary focus. It wasn't even the title of the paper. They just spent like very little time mm-hmm. talking about that. I think they were more interested in the bullying component. Um, but all that to say, their key takeaway: moving from elementary to middle school hurts bottom dogs because they lose their top dog status that they previously held in their old school. Then you say, okay, what are they recommending here? Mm-hmm. And they basically say that, you know, if at all possible, it'd be better. And just in terms of some of these bullying and, you know, things that they were uh, studying to enable a longer grade span so that those kids can serve as a relative top dog uh, longer. Uh, and so like a K-8 school. Right. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, what's interesting about this, and, and we all know this, right, mm-hmm. is we initially carved out six through eight schools because we knew middle school was a really hard time for mm-hmm. kids. It was a hard transition time. So we wanted them to have their own special attention and services. And then we also thought mm-hmm. we don't want these kids and we don't want the little kids, the K-5 kids and with the older kids mm-hmm. because maybe that's not good. You know, something's going to happen. And what this study finds us is no, when you've got longer grade spans, mm-hmm. those eighth graders are not bullying <laughs> the K first, right. second, third grade kids, right. you know? So anyway, I think it calls into question some of the decisions we make around organizing schools if we're interested mm-hmm. in obviously more the bullying aspect. Yeah. And mm-hmm. again, there was some academic achievement uh, gains too. Yeah. No, K to eight schools, right? Which, which was a big thing five years or 10 years yeah. ago. Mm-hmm. And then it seems to have uh, waned Middle school again. people. Yeah. It was a huge push to, yeah. to carve out six to eight grades. Yeah. At least, you know, I don't know, maybe it's swinging back the other way. I don't know. Yeah, New I York mean, City has so many different variations. Yeah. yeah. I mean, so I taught in a pre-K through eight school, um, which was a lot just in terms of like the needs and necessities of the kids or whatever. Um, but something that I noticed in my middle school experience, which was just a like seventh grade, eighth grade middle school experience that the kids in the K-8 school didn't have was I had like seven teachers. So I had like 
really specialized math and really specialized English, like mm-hmm. even in sixth, seventh, eighth grade. Is that possible if you're in like a K-8 school where there's, you know, fewer kids, so there's fewer right. like you're saying you might teachers back at scale. Yeah. Services, right. yeah. Which would be yeah. a worry no, for me. That's another trade-off. Yeah. Right. I mean, I think so. Well, I mean, I think like, you know, it's a pretty straightforward recommendation. Now the fact, you know, I mean, reorganizing schools this way, I mean, it seems to me like they didn't say there was any potential, you know, drawback. Yeah. On the other hand, ugh. This whole, like, like, let's just keep reorganizing the grade right. arrangements mm-hmm. doesn't seem like, feels a little bit like rearranging the thick territory. Yeah, no, mm-hmm. that's right. Yeah. Uh, put them this way, we put them back. Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. There's a huge focus on ninth grade now, and, you know, maybe we partner that up and keep it like a sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth school, right. and, and then tenth school. Academy, we had that. Right, mm-hmm. yes. That's right. So, anyway, for what it's worth, I thought it was a cool study. It mm-hmm. is a cool study, and it has big dogs and little dogs. And so dogs, cool. and little dogs, and middle dogs. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, that's all the dogs we can take for yeah. this week. Until next week. I'm Alyssa Schwang. And I'm Mike Petrilli at the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. The Education Gadfly Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute located in Washington, D.C. For more information, visit us online at edexcellence.net.